Damn it, Jim. I'm a doctor, not a wizard. You're listening to the Quiddler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for medical professionals. Witches and wizards in lime green robes were walking up and down the rows, asking questions and making notes on clipboards like umbrages. Harry noticed the emblem embroidered on their chests, a wand and bone crossed. Are they doctors? he asked Ron quietly. Doctors? said Ron, looking startled. Those muggle nutters that cut people up? Nah, they're healers. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we do have medical professionals that listen to the quibbler. At least a couple. Y'all are out here doing actual work, and we are chatting about Harry Potter. So <laughs> thanks for what you do. This week, we are reading two chapters, as usual, from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Our chapters are The Eye of the Serpent and St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. You will hear plenty of cursing, you will hear ample spoilers, and you will hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are snogging, survivor's guilt, big ol' snakes, crowded ERs, and wishing you hadn't eavesdropped. Alex, you want to tell us what happened this week? I do. In this week's chapters, Ron gets hit with a snowball when he looks outside the Gryffindor Tower window to yell at some students because he's a prefect they're studying and it's getting on ron's nerves all the merriment outside so it's uh, the twins oh yeah it's the twins hit him with a snowball so the one thing ron does as a prefect that we've seen him do so far ends in uh, a snowball in the face hagrid is back as care of magical creatures teacher he has a very interesting lesson planned it's about thestrals what are those? They're the dragon-looking winged horses that Harry can see and seemingly no one else can. So Hagrid plops down a cow carcass in front of all the students and waits for the Thestrals to emerge from the woods. At that point, he says, okay, raise your hands and if you can see them. Only Harry, Neville, and some random Slytherin raise their hand. And Har Hagrid says... That's because the only people who can see Thestrals are people who've seen death. So, way to take it from zero to a hundred. So that's an intense thing to have to share with the whole class. Umbridge shows up to inspect Hagrid in her duties as Hogwarts High Inquisitor. Obviously, she's not impressed with Hagrid. She speaks very slowly to him and only asks the Slytherins questions about how he's doing. So, I think we all know what they're going to say and writes down horrible things about him on her clipboard so it's christmas time hermione is going skiing with her family over the holidays which ron finds really hilarious the idea of muggles putting sticks on their feet and sliding down the mountain uh but i don't see how that's any sillier than riding around on a broom but whatever it's the last DA meeting of the term. Dobby has decorated the Room of Requirement with lots of awesome Christmas decorations and a banner that says a very hairy Christmas. So nice work, Dobby. And Christmas baubles with Harry's face on them. <laughs> so that's pretty extra. We find out that Ginny Weasley is the new Gryffindor seeker. They had tryouts and Ginny turns out is pretty good. And then a couple of randos are the new beaters. Uh, I don't remember their names, and I don't imagine they'll be that important again. 
correct me if I'm wrong. The meeting's a success, they practice the impedimenta, jinx, and stunning, and then something stuns Harry. It's Cho Chang. <laughs> Figuratively stuns Harry. Cho hangs back after the meeting. Harry's like, I really should go. Cho's like, it's cold outside. That would be good. A duet moment for Harry and Cho. I ought to say no, no, no. <laughs> that doesn't happen. What does happen is Cho tells Harry what a good teacher he is. Uh, she brings up Cedric. Oh, she starts crying and she says, I don't know, it feels weird learning all this stuff because I keep thinking if Cedric had known what we know now, could he have protected himself against Lord Voldemort? Harry's like, nah, Lord Voldemort pretty much kills you when he wants to, which... I don't know. That wasn't that, uh... No, Harry's more sensitive than that. He's not much more He's sensitive He's not much than more that. sensitive than that. <laughs> he says, Cedric did know all this stuff. He was really good, but, you know, when Lovos put a hit out on you, there's not much you can do. In which case, why the fuck are they yeah, learning all this stuff? <laughs> like, so... You know, Harry's nervous. Cho says, I really like you, Harry. Harry looks up. And they're standing under but 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 some motherfucking mistletoe. So Cho is like leaning in toward Harry. He can see every tear on her face, or is it eyelash? He can see every single one of her eyelashes. Every tear on her eyelash. He can see every tear on her. He can see every tear on her eyelash. And then cut to black. We're in the common room. Harry is walking in, and is immediately ambushed by Ron and Hermione, who want to know what happened after they left him and Cho alone. Hermione cuts to the chase and says, did you guys kiss? And Harry says, yes. How was it, they ask? Harry says, wet. <laughs> because she was crying, so. But they did kiss. But Harry did not ask her out. Instead, he patted her on the back. So I, this whole thing was pretty awkward in general. But that that's Harry's first kiss. This is like a big moment in the, the series. Also throughout the scene, Hermione is writing a letter to Victor Crumb, which agitates Ron, who then asks Harry later what Hermione sees in Crumb. And Harry says, well, he is an international Quidditch player. Ron's like, yeah, but besides that, <laughs> he is LeBron James of magic. Harry goes to bed thinking it would be more useful if Hogwarts taught them how girls' brains work instead of divination. He then has a crazy dream about having to give Cho a whole bunch of chocolate frogs, but then the dream fades out and he is inside of a snake. He's slithering through a dark room and he sees a man and then he attacks the man, which turns out to be Arthur Weasley. Harry wakes up. His scar feels like it's on fire. He immediately vomits. This wakes up everyone in Harry's dormitory. Neville Longbottom then becomes the only person in this entire series to go get an adult and ask for help. He, go <laughs> <laughs> he goes to McGonagall, and it's a really good decision because McGonagall then takes Harry directly to the headmaster, along with Ron. But yeah, Harry explains this vision that he saw of himself as a snake attacking Arthur, and McGonagall, of course, knows this is fucking serious, because Harry is the boy who lived, and they 
Yeah, so they, they go straight to Dumbledore's office. The password this time is Fizzing Wisby. So Dumbledore keeping it current on the candies, but not a great password protection strategy because you would just name off the Honey Duke's catalog until the gargoyle jumped aside, but whatever. Wizards are bad at passwords. Dumbledore immediately swings into action. He sends Fox to keep an eye on Professor Umbridge until they can get the other Weasleys together. He consults, like, some kind of weird, like, fidget spinner on his desk. <laughs> He's got all these crazy steampunk contraptions that, I, I, I don't know, it, like, spits out a smoky snake, and Dumbledore mutters something to himself, and Harry and the reader both wonder what the fuck is going on. Meanwhile, Dumbledore dispatches the former headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts, who are in the portraits hanging in his office, uh, off on various errands. One is sent to the Ministry of Magic, well, we know it's the Ministry of Magic, Harry doesn't, to get Arthur help, and another to St. Mungo's, uh, the Hospital of Magical Maladies and Injuries. Once all of the Weasleys at Hogwarts are collected, they port key to... Grimmauld Place, Dumbledore has a teapot that's a port key to Grimmauld Place. They spend an anxious night there with Sirius Black. Molly shows up later, like, early, in the early hours of the morning. It turns out that Arthur's okay, he's been attacked by the snake, but because he was found quickly, he's not going to die. So the next day, they go to St. Mungo's, which is, like, the tenth circle of hell. People have, like, hands growing out of their chests and, like, elephant trunks there's a baby with wings that's flying around his dad's <laughs> hair that's flying around his dad's head. Basically, it is fucked up. It's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. But Arthur's fine. He's a little worse for wear, but they've got him bandaged up and they're working on an antidote. His wounds won't close because the snake had some fucking gnarly fangs. Also, Tonks and Mad-Eye have accompanied them to St. Mungo's. When all the kids leave the room, they use extendable ears to eavesdrop on Arthur, Molly, and Mad-Eye. They're discussing just what the hell is going on with Harry Potter. They think that Voldemort is possessing him. So, dramatic silence, everyone stares at Harry, and that's what happens in these chapters. A lot of things happen in these chapters. I feel like I didn't even get to everything. There's like, these are dense chapters. So we meet our friends, the Thestrals in this chapter. I guess we've technically met them before when Harry comes face to face with one and Luna is like, don't worry, I can see it too. But we have finally figured out that they are real. Harry was not hallucinating. And we learn a little bit about what these guys are. Thestrals, said Hagrid proudly. And Hermione gave a soft, oh, of comprehension at Harry's shoulder. Hogwarts has got a whole herd of them in here. Now, who knows? But they're really, really unlucky, interrupted Pavati, looking alarmed. They're supposed to bring all sorts of horrible misfortune on people who see them. Professor Trelawney told me once. No, 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 said Hagrid, chuckling. That's just superstition, that is. They aren't unlucky, they're dead clever and useful. Course, this lot don't get a lot of work. It's mainly just pulling the school carriages, unless Dumbledore's taken a long journey and don't want to apparate. And here's another couple. Look. Two more horses came quietly out of the trees, one of them passing very close to Pavati, who shivered and pressed herself closer to the tree, saying, 
I think I felt something. I think it's near me. Don't worry, it won't hurt you, said Hagrid patiently. Right now, who can tell me why some of you can see them and some can't? Hermione raised her hand. Go on, then, said Hagrid, beaming at her. The only people who can see Thestrals, she said, are people who have seen death. That's exactly right, said Hagrid solemnly. Ten points to Gryffindor. I think the Thestrals are one of the central metaphors of these books. It seems like such a small detail, but I think the way these creatures are described and the way the magic works is really poignant and beautiful because these books are very much about death and how people react to the fact of death and mortality and that there are these creatures that you can't see unless you have this personal experience this very personal first-hand experience with death and loss is i i think that's a really powerful metaphor for what that experience is like it changes how you literally see the world and uh this this is just one of her more elegant devices i think i agree and i also think it's really important that the thestrals aren't evil or dark creatures they're complicated and as hagrid says they're misunderstood and seen as like omens of bad luck or evil but in reality they're um Again, as Hagrid says, they're dead useful. They are kind of companionable with Hagrid in kind of a dark, shy way. They have these amazing senses of direction. So I like that it's not like... What that says to me is that witnessing death doesn't... It doesn't ruin you. And it isn't like a singularly evil experience or it doesn't sort of taint you it just changes you and sort of opens the world up in a way that is challenging and complicated but I like that these creatures that you can only see if you've seen death aren't dark creatures Um, because death isn't dark it's just real it's part of every single human being's experience and If anything, like, the darkest thing we have in these books is a character who refuses to die and who refuses to grapple with the reality of mortality. So I think Rowling gives us this great, like you said, this beautiful central metaphor about how mortality and the reality of it and understanding of it changes you, but it doesn't, like, warp you. And these creatures are gentle and helpful and um misunderstood i do like that they're considered to be unlucky this kind of because there's a there's like a stigmatizing aspect to being exposed to trauma right that yes so uh i i like that the thestrals are kind of held at arm's length by wizards right and they're a really good manifestation of that stigma it's Mm -hmm. true like there's judgment involved in being someone who's able to see a Thestral which is so unfair but it's like true to reality we do have 
unfair stigmatizing feelings about people that bad things have happened to. I also am like burning with curiosity about this random Slytherin (laughs) that is the only other person who can see these things. And it's funny because Ron even says like, Ron's like, oh, it's really surprising that three people in a single class can see the Thestrals, which I don't know. Is it? Yeah. You're a generation removed from a terrible civil war. But I guess not that many people like physically witness a death. Mm -hmm. No. For young people, it would be surprising. Although they sure as shit can all see them after Deathly Hallows. Jesus. I could see Thestrals. Could you see Thestrals? Yeah, I could. That's kind of weird to think about. It is. But yeah, I would be able to see them. What an intense thing for Hagrid to just ask in the middle of class. Oh my god, I know. It's like, Hagrid has, I actually think, like Hermione says, I think this is a pretty good lesson, but Hagrid doesn't have a ton of tact around like, (laughs) all right, so Thestrals might have something to do with trauma, so maybe we should like ease into asking people like, well, and to be fair to Hagrid, he doesn't ask like, who did you see die? Right. That's Umbridge. Oh, yeah, that's fucked up. It's so umbrage, though. She very matter-of-factly goes up to Neville and is like, so who did you see die? And it's just like, uh, that's a really personal question. You right now! (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Yeah. So let's talk about kissing. Because it happens in this chapter for the first time. Yeah. And it is so weird and bad. Teen, these are teen books now, officially. I feel kind of bad for Harry. What a weird way to have your first kiss. He can't really look back on this fondly. But I guess a lot of first kisses are weird. But this one is particularly weird. When did you get your first kiss? In a movie theater. From whom? Uh, Somebody I was dating. How old were you? 15. Harry's age. Yeah, I was Harry's age. Do you look back on it fondly? Actually, no. It was ter- It was not good. It was not good all because of me. Why? I just didn't know how to kiss. I don't, it was weighted with a lot of expectations. Yeah, I actually, I think that this is like, it's Harry Potter. So like everything that happens to him is like kind of the worst version of what could happen. Not really, but um, he has a lot of. Fraught. Encounters. Yeah. But I don't think first kisses as a general rule are things that feel awesome they're mostly weird i think weird is the best word i can possibly use to describe my first kiss um yeah me too i was 12 what wow yeah at a school dance right after a school dance and it was like i didn't super want to kiss this guy but it was kind of like expected Mm. we had already gone on like a quote-unquote like date like a sixth grade date Are you 12 in sixth grade? Yeah, you are, right? 12 or 13, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And then we went to this dance together and he kissed me and it was, yeah, I would not use any particularly positive words. I mean, it wasn't like traumatizing, but like. Wet. It was not wet. It was really (laughs) dry, actually. But I think this is like a pretty good depiction of just being like totally disoriented by kissing. Like Harry has this whole kind of inner monologue where Hermione's like, are you going to see her again? 
And he's like, yeah, we have to be at meetings. And she's like, you know what I fucking mean, bro. (laughs) And he's like, I have been thinking and thinking about Cho as a crush. But like the concept of actually having to like be alone with her and like talk to her and be on a date is horrifying. And I think that's such a true depiction of what kind of like adolescent early affection or like quote unquote love feels like. Like it's more scary and nauseating than anything. I feel like Ron in the aftermath of this kiss is like kind of my favorite and my least favorite manifestation of Ron. He's such a fucking idiot. He's a goober man. But like it's so real. (laughs) Like at various points her descriptions of him are so funny he's rolling he's literally raffle he's rolling on the floor laughing but at some points he looks positively alarmed (laughs) like he's like this is freaky man i don't think i want to do any of this you would think ron would have some more like hormones going he thinks he still kind of thinks girls are gross ron's young for his age yeah i guess you're right I, i was sort of surprised by his reaction to this actually He's you know, still you, like. I think if he was like sort of meathead Ron, he'd be like, score, dude. But his meathead Ron isn't like grown up meathead Ron. Like right. he's such a. He, he just likes to like chow down and like, <laughs> I don't know, like talk about sports. But he's acting like she has cooties or something. Well, I mean, you know, they're all. They're at pretty differing stages of development like that's the other weird thing about adolescent romance right is like Hermione is talking about this like a 25 year old (laughs) (laughs) like the and I remember this so vividly the weirdest thing about being a 15 year old girl into 15 year old guys is that like my first boyfriend like could have been 10 years younger than me (laughs) for the like well my first, like, real serious boyfriend. Yeah. For the, like, differences and sort of, like, developmental stage we were at emotionally and intellectually. I wonder if he listens to this podcast. Maybe. Shout out if you do, my dear. Um, I'm not going to use your name. Don't worry. It's really hard for me not to say his name. He knows. He knows. I, you guys, this is, like, a Heather admittance that maybe we'll cut. I had one boyfriend for like my entire youth like sixth grade to freshman or sophomore year of college so like I did the whole gamut of this shit with one person so that's weird it wasn't me it certainly was not you no we met much later anyway yeah Ron's like a baby in this (laughs) um Hermione on the other hand is an adult she's so wise she has to give harry and ron a crash course in having empathy or using context clues to figure out what someone might be feeling in a situation i'm surprised at this point that she's not having to describe object permanence to them (laughs) hermione looked at the pair of them with an almost pitying expression on her face don't you understand how cho's feeling at the moment she asked No, said Harry and Ron together. Hermione sighed and laid down her quill. Well, obviously she's feeling very sad because of Cedric dying. Then I expect she's feeling confused because she liked Cedric and now she likes Harry and she can't work out who she likes best. 
Then she'll be feeling guilty, thinking it's an insult to Cedric's memory to be kissing Harry at all, and she'll be worrying about what everyone else might say about her if she starts going out with Harry. And she probably can't work out what her feelings towards Harry are anyway, because he was the one who was with Cedric when Cedric died, so that's all very mixed up and painful. Oh, and she's afraid she's going to be thrown off the Ravenclaw Quidditch team because she's been flying so badly. A slightly stunned silence greeted the end of this speech. Then Ron said, One person can't feel all that at once. They'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, said Hermione nastily, picking up her quill again. She's like, Ron, Harry... You know when you react to external stimuli and have feelings about them? That happens to women, too. Well, yeah. Harry has that line about, like, they should teach us how girls' brains work. Because, like, rather than transfiguration, that would be way more useful. And it infuriates me. Because, like, in the <laughs> next chapter, Harry is like, oh, like... Maybe I'm possessed. Also, did I kill my friend's dad? Also, I'm still thinking about kissing Cho. Like, he's having that same mm -hmm. flood of emotions. And it's like, bro, like, that's how girls' brains work. Yeah. You're not, like, being told. It's not like fucking ancient runes up in here. Exactly like yours. That's how their brains work, basically. Maybe so, not exactly like yours, but, you know. But the fact that he can't relate to the fact that Cho has complicated feelings about Cedric is infuriating. Because it's like, friend... You have complicated feelings about Cedric and about Cho. Yep. So how is it so hard to understand that her feelings might be complicated too? And I love Hermione is just like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, yeah, girls just have emotions. To be fair, at that age, girls are significantly more able to identify and manage their emotions and the emotions of boys. But yeah, Harry has this, like, constantly roiling heart and mind, and he's like, why can't Cho just feel one thing at a time? <laughs> and why that, can't that thing be wanting to kiss me only? That's more Ron's reaction, right? Ron's like, he doesn't get it. Well, and then Hermione delivers the best line in the book. Burn. Just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all do Ronald. She doesn't say Ronald, but I imagine her saying it. Also, Harry considers asking Sirius for advice on girls probably a bad idea did Sirius ever like have girlfriends Sirius is too busy being in love with James is or, my understanding I had no idea it's never referred to he certainly was a bachelor at the time of when all the shit went down with Peter Pettigrew it seems like he was sort of a bad boy though so I presumably people were into him i don't know we don't get much information about sirius's love life regardless i just want to tell harry like sirius not your advice guy he's a go-to <laughs> for a couple of things matters of the heart not your dude if you were harry who would you go to for girl advice though because like he doesn't have that like his bench isn't particularly deep i don't know Neville's the only person that actually formulated a plan to ask someone out in like a timely fashion no, Fred and George, too. You could ask Fred and George, but they'd make fun of you and tell everybody. But, like, <laughs> they'd give good advice. Fred yeah, and George yeah. seem good with no, their No, they'd be chill about that. Um, if you came to them in good faith. Yeah. Ginny and Hermione, but sometimes it's hard to talk to girls about girls. Right. But, like, Ginny knows what the fuck she's talking about. My Gin God. Ginny knows the deal with everyone. Um, Ginny is a woman after my own heart because, like, low-key Ginny's a gossip. 
<laughs> like not in a malicious way. Jenny just like knows the deal, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. But as far as adults, like Lupin doesn't know what he's doing. Like Lupin can barely figure out how to like tell Tonks that he wants to like werewolf marry her. Um, Honestly, Dumbledore would probably be pretty good for romance advice. Dumbledore is a lifelong confirmed bachelor. Yeah, but he's got like, he knows how people tick though. Yeah, that's true. He's very empathetic. Yeah. He's just seen a lot of shit. I just think he would be straightforward. I, if I was going to pick a male, like guardian type, here's who I would talk to actually. Yeah. Hagrid or Arthur Weasley? Not Hagrid. Hagrid's terrible with Olympia. He's not. He goes not. on a right. romantic yeah, camping trip with yeah. her for like six months. Yeah, Hagrid would probably Hagrid would probably be cool. And Hagrid gets like feelings. Like Hagrid is really good about talking to Ron and Harry about Hermione. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Hagrid. I think Arthur Weasley would be great because I feel like he's like a little. He's like a bit of a lad. <laughs> like he'd want to chat about it but at the same time like he's in a very successful relationship like he would tell the boys to like treat women with respect yeah arthur would be I think good for that arthur would give really really good advice about romance arthur there are enough women in his life that he like knows what they're about and he's in i would say by far the most successful relationship in these books yeah absolutely all right um, talk to arthur weasley not serious no, never talk to Sirius <laughs> about anything. I also really like in this scene that Hermione is writing this like novel of a letter to Victor Crumb. Because like Harry and Ron aren't great like listeners. No, they're actually terrible at it. And you know that she's not talking about all the like Order of the Phoenix stuff. No, she it's just, just wants about- to... Her own ideas and thoughts and feelings. Yeah. It's nice that she has that outlet. Like, she has somebody that she can talk to about, like, school. Yeah. Her house elf, like, activism. And I feel like she's writing to Victor about just, like, the normal stuff in her mind. That is a nice thing. Right. Because whenever Hermione is talking to Harry and Ron, it is to be managing something that is going on with them. Hermione never talks about her own shit. Ever. Ever to these boys. I cannot remember. She feels, and she can't, like she could not talk to Ron about Victor if she tried a million times. He's a git about it. I cannot remember any time in these books, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I do not remember any time Hermione goes to Harry or Ron with a problem. Here's a thing going on with me. And I need your, like, advice. Yeah, never. Or help. So thank God for Victor Crumb, because Hermione has no outlet otherwise. The one time she's all stressed out, Hagrid has to, like, stage an intervention with Harry and Ron to tell them to be nice to her. And, like, from everything we know about Hermione, like, she's thinking all the time. Like, girl has lots and lots going on in her head. Maybe she has an affair with Crumb way down the line. Ugh, I hope so. That's my... I am... I am coming around to Ron in this book. Like, I find Ron wholly charming in this chapter, but I remain convinced that he is a horrible match for bright, empathetic, interesting Hermione. Oh, well. What are you going to do? So hopefully she's like, hopefully she has like an emotional affair with Crumb. (laughs) I just like... Just a lifelong intellectual partnership. I just want her to be able to tell someone her feelings. It's all physical with Ron. Ugh. Just animal magnetism, as yeah. Ron might put it. Well, gross. Let's talk about 
Dumbledore. Let's give Dumbledore some credit. Dumbledore is a terrible educator and not the best headmaster by a long shot, but he's a hell of a general. Yeah. Like, when kind of push comes to shove, Dumbledore knows how to handle a crisis. He is a true, he's a terrible peacetime headmaster, a true battlefield commander. Oh, yeah. He's absolutely, he's a wartime leader. (laughs) That's where he shines. Um, He's like a conflict guy. He's a chaos guy. So we're really impressed with him in this scene where Harry shares his terrible nightmare and everybody for once in Harry's life, it's such a relief, believes him. Yeah. And actually takes action based on the intelligence that he's providing. What are those crazy steampunk silver gadgets on his desk? I have no idea. Do we ever find out? Uh I'm assuming one of them is the put-outer, or the deluminator, as we later learn, but I I, I don't know. Just an open question. I like the mystery of it, you know? I like that Dumbledore just has these weird wizard computers that... I mean, it's good set dressing. Yeah. This scene shows, to me, how much Umbridge has really fucked things up. Because, like, even Dumbledore is pretty freaked out about her getting involved. He's like, we gotta do this way under the radar. And he gets genuinely frightened when Fox notifies him that she's, like, on her way. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Spooky. It's just like, yeah, when you can rattle Dumbledore, that's bad. Yeah. I don't Um, know if he's rattled so much as just concerned. He knows what the deal is. Like, he understands that he has to keep the kids out of her clutches Mm -hmm. and that he just has to like keep the information that they have as far away from umbridge as is possible but it's just like upsetting to have somebody in the castle be so powerful and so such an antagonist that even dumbledore has to kind of like operate clandestinely and fucking voldemort lived there for a year yeah on someone's head so still i love the portraits of the former headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts, I still don't understand how this technology works. In fact, I have even more questions because it's like if the National Portrait Gallery had like intelligence, right? I I guess there are these shades of the former headmasters and headmistresses that like somehow contain their like essence and combined knowledge. Like I like that idea that. Dumbledore can just at any minute, like, tap the thousand-year history of the school, all these people with experience, but it's not them, you know? We know that the souls of the departed go elsewhere in this universe. They're not just, like, imprisoned in this weird portrait phantom zone. So these are, like, new beings that are modeled after the headmasters and headmistresses, and, like contain their memories and experiences and knowledge and react the way they might, but they also understand that they're portraits? Yeah, and exist within the limitations of portraits. It's really weird when you really start to think about it. I I just, uh, I don't know. Like, is Hogwarts itself a painting? I mean, right. The existence of these portraits makes it possible it's like the simulation problem. Yeah, the like, simulation theory or whatever. Like, are, is Hogwarts a holographic universe or a portrait universe? 
Is someone just looking at a painting of Hogwarts and this whole story is happening within it? So do these AIs only sort of like spring to life when called upon or interacted with by a living person? Whoa. Like, do they have inner lives when not being, like, utilized by Dumbledore? Like, what do they do all day? What experiences do they have just, like, being immortal in a painting? I just, do they feel boredom? Do they, I... They must not. I mean, how are these things programmed? What are they programmed to do? When are and aren't they, like, selves? Just, like, everything about this is mind-boggling. They go visit each other in the rest of the castle. They do. They, like, go back and forth between... It's interesting to... An interesting wrinkle that gets added in this chapter is that portraits of the same person can move back and forth between multiple depictions of themselves. Which, A, like, doesn't make sense because, like, two pictures of the same person, it's not that they, like, look the same. <laughs> like, George Washington couldn't just, like, randomly just, like, jump from painting to painting to painting of himself because he's, like, in a different outfit and it's painted by different people so it looks different. Now, maybe it's these like, are two portraits. Maybe maybe they're the same they're portrait. They're, like, copies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they can only go between copies. Also, But that's weird that that exists. Also, you gotta remember... Wizard portraits change a lot. Like maybe That's they cha- true. maybe they change clothes. They got like different outfits like off stage, wherever off stage is. What is off stage though? Like where I know cuz sometimes you will walk out of the portraits. And where is that? Where is that? Where what? is yeah, where is that? What realm are they in when they are in neither portrait? And they know their portraits. Oh my god. No, it like hurts my brain to think about. <laughs> It's um, so strange. Because there's a Dumbledore portrait in the last book. Right, that people talk to. What is that? It's not Dumbledore. No, it's not Dumbledore. Because we go hang out with Dumbledore in like the Netherworld or whatever. <laughs> who is, and he's totally somewhere else, but somehow. And like, who casts this spell? Does this happen automatically when you get painted? Or does somebody have to like, program you how can the painter possibly like somehow magically possess or imbue a picture with like the memories of someone that he doesn't share is it a special paint well i mean it Maybe actually just the act of representing someone like calls in like a like imbues it with a weird copy of that person's essence but like think about the power that gives to artists i mean In a way, that's, like, an incredible commentary on, like, the strength and power of creating art. Yeah. But, like, in a way that's terrifying and bizarre. Why didn't Harry just get a painting of his dead parents? Well, that's the other thing. If paintings can do this, why wouldn't you always have paintings of people done so that you could communicate with them after their deaths? There's legit a Black Mirror episode about this. Is there? Yeah. There's, like, a... AI of someone's dead like partner but I I haven't seen it I'm just aware of this episode but I mean the portraits are a Black Mirror episode (laughs) like the portraits are one of the freakier things in the magical universe there must there's got to be some wizarding law against it because you don't see portraits that often it's only in these kind of 
I wonder if There's only a, it's mostly photographs. Certain like special people are allowed to have portraits done of them, which that's really fucked up because well, we, that's like rationing access to like the afterlife. We know that this port it might be really hard and expensive because so mm. far the only place we've seen portraits so far is Hogwarts, the Ministry of Magic, St. Mungo's, because there's a there's a portrait of one of the headmistresses there, and Grim Old Place has the portrait or the portrait of Sirius's mom. But that rich. means But it's like doesn't see it's like sort of her mom. It's like what her mom would say, but only one specific thing that she would say. I, I don't some of them seem to be more robust than others, because the por- the portrait of Sirius's mom just like shouts. Well, maybe that's what she was like actually like no, I, I don't know but it does seem like it captures like a particular side of each person right like it, it like you exist eternally in like a certain mood like circa duggan doesn't have that many levels no or like the fat lady is like only kind of like a little bit no pun intended but like one note so maybe it like it doesn't program like a whole person wow but still, like, what the fuck are these things? Oh, do Hogwarts paintings dream acrylic sheep? <laughs> that was very good. Um, there's one more really cool moment in this segment that I want to talk about, and that's when Harry is about to get whisked away by the portkey, and for this split second, he gazes into Dumbledore's eyes, and he desperately wants to murder him. And we know he's channeling Lord Voldemort, but it's just, it's just truly a chilling moment and really well done yeah harry he's harry in the streets lovo in the sheets in these chapters literally i don't think that's that funny i think it's hilarious okay. that's fine um sure he is but it does explain why dumbledore is being so cool toward harry because he seems to have sensed that there is some iteration of lovo's thoughts in harry which, like, you could have fucking shared that information. Or got it to Harry through some kind of back channel. But maybe he doesn't want to freak Harry out. So, way better for Harry to just hear it secondhand, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely better for him to experience a murder through <laughs> Voldemort's eyes. Or, like, a near murder. Maybe. Then just have somebody tell him the truth. <laughs> Ugh. Let's talk a little about St. Mungo's Hospital. TBH, let's talk a lot about St. Mungo's Hospital. For magical maladies and injuries. Harry is once again astounded by magic. Come on, man. He's on the streets. They see this beat old department store with some, like, kind of bedraggled mannequins. And Tonks is there with them and is talking to... She's talking to one of the mannequin heads, right? And then she just evaporates into... Like, she walks through the glass. And Harry's like, whoa, that's crazy. And it's like, dude, you've seen this kind of thing before. <laughs> How does this continue to shock you? But at the same time, it's shocking. It is shocking. I guess he's more surprised that nobody passing by seems to take notice, which I like because it's the idea of the the thoroughly unmagical people just bustling about with their holiday shopping. Can't even stop to see this crazy thing. This storefront, what it's Purge and Downs or something like that. Mm-hmm. This storefront reminds me of Wigorama in Tucson. Anyone from Tucson will remember Wigorama. Right by the grill. Yeah. Both businesses are gone now. I, I think Wigorama actually burned down. 
uh, Wigorama looked like the entrance to some kind of magical establishments. It was this crazy wig store that was clearly a front for something. <laughs> because nobody was ever in there buying wigs, but it was just like wall-to-wall scary mannequin heads with these like super beat wigs on them. And I don't it was think just I like, ever saw it open in all the time I lived there. It honestly might have been the American St. Mungo's. Like, I think so. I... I'm actually really curious. Some of you, I, I know a couple of you are from Tucson. Some because you're our friends and some because randomly a lot of people are from Tucson. <laughs> um, hopefully this is resonating with at least a couple people. But yeah, I imagined Wigorama too. Um, RIP that, RIP the grill. Yeah. Uh, the grill also was probably run by wizards, to be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, this is all just downtown Tucson, like... <laughs> ephemera yeah so anyway uh any- wizard medicine <laughs> the weasley party moved forward a few steps and harry read the floor guide artifact accidents ground floor cauldron explosion one backfiring broom crashes etc creature induced injuries first floor bites stings burns embedded spines etc magical bugs second floor Contagious maladies, e.g. dragonpox, vanishing sickness, scrofungulus. Potion and plant poisoning, third floor. Rashes, regurgitation, uncontrollable giggling, etc. Spell damage, fourth floor. Unliftable jinxes, hexes, and incorrectly applied charms, etc. Visitors' tea room and hospital shop, fifth floor. If you are unsure where to go, incapable of normal speech, or unable to remember why you are here, our welcome witch will be pleased to help. A very old, stooped wizard with a hearing trumpet had shuffled to the front of the queue now. I'm here to see Broderick Bode. He wheezed. Ward 49, but I'm afraid you're wasting your time, said the witch dismissively. He's completely addled, you know. Still thinks he's a teapot. Next! What the fuck? I have so many questions and quibbles here. So can they only treat wizard diseases? That's a very good question. They come in... They don't have, like, x-ray machines. Uh, I I don't know what kind of medical... I don't know what kind of medical gizmos... They use, but yeah, if you come in with a thoroughly average disease, do they not average? If you just come in with something that most humans get, do they just say, "Oh, I'm sorry, we can only treat magic cancer. We can't do like, like <laughs> presumably you're a wizard have to get your appendectomy somewhere else, right? Or like presumably <laughs> a wizard can have a heart attack. Yeah, like do they do wizards only die of wizard stuff? It seems, I mean, they're human. Right. Like, I guess there are some genetic differences we learn in, like, non-canon bullshit. But It seems like they can get the cold because Madame Pomfrey is constantly prescribing, like, pepper-up potion during, like, flu season. Right. So, like, can wizards get, like, brain cancer? And if so, can St. Mungo's treat it? Or does it... Do they just die of that because they're like, oh, we can't go to a muggle hospital? Like... I uh, have no idea. Ron does seem to have disdain for muggle doctors, though. He says... Uh, he calls them nutters, nutters that cut people up. And it's like, 
you guys haven't invented surgery, so uh, who are the nutters? <laughs> that is very Star Trek. That's very Bones McCoy in uh, Star Trek The Voyage Home when they're in the hospital. And he's talking about how, like, savage 20th century medicine is. Reminds me of that. It is pretty savage. <laughs> 21st century medicine remains pretty intense. But, I mean, it's it the can, best we've got. It can <laughs> cure shit. Yeah, it's way better than what we had 200 years ago. Well, and then the other question is, can muggles catch wizard diseases? Yeah, can muggles get dragon pox? Um, I don't think so. It, it must be, like a totally different, like, gene pool. I mean, we know it is. But, like, are muggle-borns susceptible to, like, different illnesses than, like, pure-blood wizards? I have no idea. I'm assuming only magic folk can get magic diseases like dragon pox and vanishing sickness? What the fuck is that? Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> but we know that St. Mungo's can treat muggles because right. there's muggles in St. Mungo's when they go because... Arthur Weasley is talking about how there were some nasty doorknobs that bit off Muggles' fingers. And now they're in St. Mungo's getting their bones regrown. And their memories modified. So, like, clearly St. Mungo's has the technology, such as it is, to treat Muggles as well as wizards. But, like, I just have a lot of questions about... So, okay, they can treat, like, non-magical injuries. Yeah. Like, they can treat things like broken bones. They have blood replenishing potions, so they don't need to do blood transfusions, but they can treat, like, heavy bleeding. So, like, that brings me to my other question. Like, if they have this stuff, they are just letting millions and millions and millions of people die by not sharing this technology. Like, think about how many people just bleed out from, like, bullet wounds. Yeah. They have blood replenishing potion. What are the ethics of this? I know, it's not, so complicated. Not, not great, right? Like, yeah, they're hoarding life-saving cures. Unless blood replenishing potions don't work on muggles. But clearly, wizard medicine does work on muggles because they're regrowing these right. muggle bones. Yeah, give that to, like, amputees. So wizards are deliberately keeping muggles from getting access to healthcare that would literally save millions of lives maybe they don't have physical muggle illnesses they sure as shit have muggle mental illnesses yeah they really do like clearly psychiatry and psychology have not occurred to wizards yet so for all their incredible medical care they don't have like therapists or like fucking prozac yeah but they have all these psychotropic drugs like the draft of peace. Right, they do. They have lots of potions that presumably change your state of mind. Yeah, the the, the wizard medicine's very thorny. Uh, wizarding injuries seem terrible. Oh my god. But we've talked about this before with the candy. Wizards just lead more extreme, like experience more extreme physical sensations. Well, and it's because they have access to all of this wizard healing. Right. So it like doesn't, matter as much if really horrible things happen to their bodies because like as a general rule they survive things that muggles never would right um also they have all this like fucked up like curses and charms and stuff that do things like give babies wings and <laughs> the er scene it's not an er i guess but like the waiting room like you said in the summary is truly upsetting harry should be shocked by that yeah uh this wizard hoarding of medical technology kind of reminds me of Wakanda in 
Black Panther. That's kind of the ethical question at the center of that movie. Like, how much should this tiny nation that has this incredible resource called vibranium, should they, like, hide away? What are the implications of their isolationism? Well, and, like, the whole... Spoilers, point... spoilers for Black Panther, Ed. Oh, yeah. Spoilers for Black Panther. Um, The whole central conflict is when the villain Killmonger shows up and is like you owe your brothers and sisters across the world this wealth and um resources right and ability to defend yourself and a lot of commentary around Black Panther has been like Killmonger's right like he's the least wrong Marvel villain that I have seen and I think there's, like, pretty similar questions about wizarding medicine. Like, what do you owe people? Yeah, when I saw Black Panther, I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, this is, like, you remember, like, the Black Hogwarts, like, hashtag? I was like, this is Black Hogwarts. A I little mean, bit. I mean, kind like, of. You They're know, not... a little secret, so advanced as to appear magical, like, right. society. And wizards, the reason, wizards don't interact with muggles for... Some of the same reasons that the Wakandans don't interact with other nations. Yeah. Which is, like, for their own protection, basically. Right. So, yeah, wizards are... Yeah, that's why wizards hide themselves away. They don't want to be... They see it as more... Even though they have this, like, power, they see it as, like, risky. I have to say, though, for all its isolationism, Wakanda is significantly higher functioning as a society and a culture yes. than, the, than the wizarding world. <laughs> Those guys have their shit way more together than the wizards. <laughs> so, yeah, no shade to Wakanda here. Wakanda forever. An interesting thing about this event, Arthur Weasley's attack, is that it's pretty widely understood, and she has said in interviews and stuff that um jk rowling intended arthur weasley to die in this book yeah and he is the only character that she had written in a death for that she actually undid as she wrote the series yeah she had plotted out the deaths in advance and arthur was on the hit list arthur was marked Mm -hmm. And and yeah she undid it she saved him she wanted a parent figure to die in the books to kind of parallel Harry's experience of losing parents, but she loved the character of Arthur too much to do away with him, basically. She thought that was a bridge too far. And thought that he was too important as a father figure to... And I have to agree. I think killing Arthur would have been a massive mistake in these books. Well, yeah, so yeah, there's this interview which she does with Meredith Vieira in like 2007 where she says Arthur in her mind is... Probably the only good father figure in the whole series. I think she's right. The only, like, pretty unambiguously good father figure. Yeah. Successful at fathering. Besides Lupin. Who dies. Who dies. She dies in Arthur's place. Yeah, she replaces Arthur's death with Lupin and Tonks' deaths. She says in that interview. Um, And I know that's not canon, so sorry. We kind of brought in outside. But it's an interesting... Yeah, well, we're not that consistent on that, are we? But it's an interesting... That's this is more about her process. Fair. You know. <laughs> to justify it. It's interesting that that's the choice she made. So of course setting up like Teddy Lupin is then parentless. But uh I think she made the right choice. I think uh I think keeping Arthur alive was is a good move. And I think I don't know if in the original draft she'd intended Arthur to die at the end of this book, but killing him here 
really would have gummed up the whole the whole yeah, narrative. Yeah, it would have derailed the whole novel. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I think so. The Weasleys don't come out unscathed. We know, but killing Arthur would effectively remove the Weasleys from play. Yeah, like I don't think that Molly would keep fighting. Essentially, I think she would. Well, maybe she would have. I don't know. You can't underestimate Molly. No, I don't underestimate Molly. I just think that Molly, like, puts her family first. Yeah. And I think they would have been too, maybe not that she wouldn't keep fighting, but, like, I think that the Weasleys would have been too undone by grief to continue to really play a major role in this conflict. Yeah, I think this would have been such a horrible thing that it sort of would have swamped, it would have swamped the rest of, the rest of this book particularly. But it would have become about... Ron's grief. Yeah. Which is like, it's about Harry's grief, so like... But Harry was a baby. Right. I mean, Uh it really is different. And also, I mean, it's like trying to imagine these books being about Cedric's parents. Right. Like, what is happening with Cedric's parents is that they are grieving. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Like, so I think that Arthur dying, yeah, would have just been too intense at the wrong moment. And it would have kind of effectively removed a lot of the most important characters from play. I don't think that Ron and Harry's friendship would have survived Arthur's death. No, probably not. I can't imagine that they... Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, maybe in the long run. Yeah. Not in the short term. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it didn't happen. I'm Me glad too. She, I think she made a smart move by... Uh, Thank God Arthur lives. I also just think I would have stopped Arthur. reading. <laughs> like, that's just too sad. I think it would have stopped a lot of people cold, especially in the middle of the book. Why would you finish this book if Arthur <laughs> Weasley died? Um, I'm very glad he survives. And maybe I'm being unfair to the Weasleys. I don't mean that they would have, like, become useless. I just mean that, like, it would have been multiple years before we could really, like, jump back in with Ron's story. Because just, like, it would just be grief. Yeah. I think it's better that he survives because it adds teeth to Mrs. Weasley's vision with the bogger earlier in the book. Like, if she'd immediately killed someone off after Mrs. Weasley saw that, it just feels I, I unfair. Just, I just don't. I just. I, I just don't think it would have worked. But no. I think this adds. This nicely ups the stakes without. Just like totally derailing the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It ups the stakes. It up the stakes nicely. It, it's best to keep the deaths at the end. Generally, I think. Um. Like Shakespearean status. Like, although that doesn't happen in seven. That's true. We she, lose uh, a lot of people right up front. She spaces it out nicely. It's true. So Mad-Eye Moody is an asshole. (laughs) He's like in the room just like, God, Harry Potter's a fucking weirdo, am I right? And it's like, okay, takes one to know one, friend. Yeah, uh, of course you know he's different. He's the boy who lived, man. He's the chosen one. Weird shit is gonna happen with Harry Potter, dog. But at the same time, he's right. Can you imagine? I'm just trying to imagine being like Dean and Seamus in that scene. Where Harry's like, I had a nightmare. And everyone was like, it's real. <laughs> they would just be like, who the fuck is this kid? Like, what is happening right now? Hopefully McGonagall went and explained instead of just everyone Certainly ghosts. not. Yeah, definitely Certainly not. not. That is not how things play out at Hogwarts. Dean and Shane are just like, Dean and Seamus are just like, what the fuck? Although this does help, so far as I remember, maybe I'm wrong. This does actually like cause Seamus to believe Harry. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, you, like, aren't just a crazy person. You're legit having visions, which is crazy, but (laughs) they're correct. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I feel like this is where Seamus comes around, but I might be incorrect. So we'll see see in the next couple chapters. Um, Sorry if I'm wrong. 
Who's your unsung hero? Mine is Phineas Nagellus Black, the least popular headmaster of Hogwarts ever. Yeah, I know he like dawdles and kind of drags his feet working for Dumbledore, but I just find him very funny. He still serves Hogwarts. He's like a Slytherin who's on board, even though he's like bound by whatever weird painting spell forces him to work for the current headmaster. Uh, I, I just, uh, I find him very curmudgeonly and funny. And Jim Dale's voicing of him is awesome. Agreed. Uh, mine is Fox in the grand tradition of birds as unsung heroes. He is just like dead handy. <laughs> um, He's just like flying around, leaving feathers, sending messages, like kind of single-handedly like orchestrating this whole grand escape from Hogwarts. He is so beautiful and so majestic and just a really nice bird. I'm proud of him and I'm glad he exists. With Phineas, Slytherins have just been dicks forever, right? There's no reason for him to be an asshole. Well, he kind of explains to Harry, this is like in the next chapter, but he's like, the thing about Slytherins is like, we're not cowards. We just like think of ourselves first. (laughs) So he's like, I just would always save my own neck before I would do something brave for someone else. Like, and he's like, I'm not, it's not that I'm not brave. It's just that I'm like self-interested. Oh, he does? He says that? Yeah. Oh, Phineas. So he kind of explains, and that makes sense as like kind of a Slytherin characteristic. And I don't necessarily that think that is like a characteristic of like an evil person. Right. It's just like Slytherins are fundamentally self-interested, which well. is fine. I mean, it's a survival instinct, which Harry like very barely has. <laughs> so that's good. This week's episode is brought to you by Blood Replenishing Potion. It's bloody useful. (laughs) The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Facebook or I guess other places if they exist. Um, Those are the main places we look. And uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We are on social media in various places. You can find us at Quibbler Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us. That's quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you and reading your awesome owl posts. So thank you for that. You can also find our newsletter, which is quite good, at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. Next week, we will be reading Christmas on the Closed Ward and Occlumency from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. It's Christmas in April. Yep, it is indeed. And also, Snape can read your mind. Thanks, amigos. I'm not a magician, Spock. Just an old country doctor.